Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Robert Jobson's Royal Podcast. I'm Robert Jobson, Royal Editor of the Evening Standard, and what a busy week it's been. On Saturday, the 19th of May, Prince Harry married Meghan Markle at St George's Chapel, Windsor. And, in June so, they became their Royal Highnesses the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, thanks to Her Majesty the Queen conferring that title upon them. Lucky me, I had a fantastic vantage point as thousands of people piled into the town on the trains to watch the royal couple say their vows and hopefully, and they did, catch a glimpse of the couple as they drove out of the castle into the sunshine on that wonderful Ascot lander. It really was a picture when that happened. So while most couples, however, head off on their well-earned honeymoon straight after their wedding, this royal couple had barely a day off before they went straight back to work. They made their first official appearance just two days after getting married, attending a garden party in honour of Prince Charles's 70th birthday and, of course, his patronages and military associations that he's had for over half a century. I was there too, and coming up in this episode, you'll hear from the new Duke of Sussex, Prince Harry, about his father's life and his father's legacy, as well as some of the people who have been impacted by the Prince of Wales's patronage. Later in this episode, I'll be talking again to Ken Wolfe, Princess Diana's former personal protection officer, about that special relationship between Prince Harry and the man who he chose to be his best man, his brother, the Duke of Cambridge, Prince William. I'll also be reading for my book, The Future Royal Family, published by John Blake, about the future king, Prince Charles, and the role he has played in raising his own heir, Prince William. Remember to subscribe to Robert Jobson's Royal Podcast on Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate and review this show. Find more exclusive content on standard.co.uk slash royalpodcast and get in touch with me directly on Twitter at The Royal Editor. After the celebrations of the weekend, Royal Watchers didn't have to wait long for the next glimpse of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, just days in fact. They joined around 6,000 guests to celebrate the 70th birthday of Harry's father, the Prince of Wales, and as it happened, I was there too. It was a special celebration for the Prince of Wales's uh, 70th birthday, which is not actually until November, but it was to give all of his um, people that have worked closely with him, with his different patronages and his military affiliations, the chance to come to a special garden party 
to um, celebrate the prince and all that it's achieved. It was a wonderful occasion. I've been to many garland parties before, and some people in military dress, some in morning suits, as was obligatory until a few years ago, and others just in um, uh, day dress, ladies wearing almost like they're going to the races with hats and very smart um, dresses, etc. Um, it was a very sunny day. Um, to the left was a huge tent filled with staff that were serving out um, iced coffees and cups of tea and sam cucumber sandwiches and little cakes as well as uh, juice because it was such a hot day. And it was a really um, positive atmosphere. Um, and when Harry uh, and Meghan appeared, the new Duke and Duchess of Sussex, uh, alongside the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla, and the Prince of Wales, there was a huge cheer. Um, there were many tributes to the Prince's work, but one of the most touching was from the Duke himself. Prince Harry, when he got to the podium, was cheered uh, by the crowd, and then he addressed the crowd. Good afternoon and welcome to Buckingham Palace. We're here today to reflect on and to celebrate my father's dedicated support to all of you and the work that you do. It really is amazing to see so many of you here today for this family celebration. I say family because this is a chance for us to honour the Prince of Wales' work over the last 40 plus years with all of his charities, patronages and military associations. And, as you all know, my father views all of your organisations like an extended family. As I was preparing for this afternoon, I looked through the long list of those who had been invited. Oh, I was again struck by the range and diversity of the work which you are involved with. Currently, there are your two major charities, the Prince's Trust and the newly formed Prince's Foundation, which has brought together your work supporting vulnerable young people in society, the built environment, culture, heritage, and education. These sit alongside your 18 military associations and more than 420 patronages, ranging from music and the arts to rare breeds and plant life. Although the subjects vary enormously, I know that the way in which you work with each of them does not. So I'm here at the garden party, the special celebration for the Prince of Wales, his um, 70th birthday patronage celebration it's six months ahead of uh, the prince of wales's birthday but that's no worry um because of course uh, his royalty as prince harry said prince harry made a speech which you have just heard and there i'm in the gardens of buckingham palace with some of the six thousand people whose lives the prince of wales has changed for the better i'm now here with a gentleman who's he's got a chicken on his tie chicken on his tie and uh, apparently the Prince of Wales has got an affiliation to this chicken. I'll let him explain it. Yes, um, my name is Bill Oldcorn. I am a life member of the Moran Club of Great Britain. The Morans is a breed which was brought up, a French breed, brought over in 1929 by Lord Greenway which we have developed and is now one of the prime brown egg I like a brown egg. Brown egg. A true brown egg. I mean mahogany. Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, mahogany egg. His Royal Highness is, is an avid supporter of our club, of, hence his patronage that he's kindly given over, and keeps a few himself at high growth. So he likes a brown egg in the morning? Like, oh, he likes a brown egg. There are rumours, there are rumours, I don't know whether I should say this, 
I think it was all a bit, uh, uh, you know, whatever, that he has six boiled eggs produced in the morning. Oh, yeah, there was that story. I don't necessarily <laughs> think it's true. There's a story about he has keep them boiling, so he has exactly right. But I've spoken to his chef, actually, years ago. He said, no, no, he does not waste eggs like this. No, but no. there we are. But, but, but my favourite uh, anecdote about Prince Charles, he did have a manager who was showing his birds because we keep our birds we show the birds we also show the eggs and uh, prince charles a few years ago entered uh, or his manager on his behalf entered a few eggs in the national championship show and i was most put out because i was first and he was second and i don't be put out by coming first <laughs> never be put out even if a prince comes second it just means he has to try harder no, 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 yeah. So, so this this lady here on my tie. Yeah, he's got. I'll describe it. It's a very smart tie, that white with a grey, and then he's got his. Um, I can see the brown eggs. Yeah, look yeah. amazing. And she won the. What's she called? She yeah. won the Pullet class. We don't give them. You names. don't go names because you. They do end up. Oh no! Exactly. <laughs> but she, they are used. Her, her, her progeny is still laying eggs and winning eggs. Winning egg. Prizes. Where are you from, by I'm the way? I'm from Preston in Lancashire. I, oh, that's yeah. good. So we, oh, I'm glad to hear that these. These chickens are doing well and the eggs are doing well and the prince is backing them. That's the most important thing. Thank you so much for talking Thank to me. Thank you. Of course, the royal wedding featured a cast of characters who had all played an important role in the lives of the bride and groom. Prince Charles himself stepped in to walk the bride down the aisle when her own father's poor health prevented him from being there. Prince Harry's mother, Diana, was there in spirit as her sister... Harry's aunt, Lady Jane Fellows, gave a very moving reading at the service. And Prince Harry was accompanied by a man who perhaps more than anyone else had been his constant friend, companion and loyal confidant, his own brother, the Duke of Cambridge, Prince William. It's from the Duke of Cambridge that this episode takes its title, Harry's Best Man. Before the wedding, I sat down with a man who has known the two princes from childhood. Ken Wharf, an inspector with Scotland Yard, spent seven years guarding them with their mother, Princess Diana, in his role as their and her personal protection officer. And Ken is joining me now for a little chat about his time um, and his experiences with uh, Harry and William and that great bond that they shared together. Harry announced that uh, William is going to be his best man, like... uh, uh, Harry was for William. Um, some thought that was a bit strange and that he didn't pick one of his mates to do it, but they've had a, they've enjoyed a very close relationship, haven't they, really? I mean, you would have witnessed it in their early days. I think that William, you know, apart as all older brothers, would probably pick on his younger brother, but would be caring for him. I mean, tell us a little bit about that relationship, the, the closeness between the, the two brothers that you witnessed. I, I'm not surprised that... Um you know that Harry's chosen to ask his brother to be best man. I, I, you know, I never thought it'd be anybody else to be honest, because, you know, that's what you do. You you, you get your best mate, and um, if you're lucky enough to have a brother that's your best mate, I think that's fine. I, and in the same way that that William did it with, with with Harry. But as two kids, they were great. I mean, they were two totally different characters, but they were friends. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I during my time there, we we they they were friends, although completely different in character. I went with, with Diana and William on his first day at school. Uh, I'll never forget that because um, you know, we got in the car and Diana said uh, to William, now, William, when we get there, there's going to be lots of, of photographers and 
and media, and I don't want any mucking about. So when we get out of the car, I just, you know, wave and smile. And he put his head down beneath his peak of his coat, and he just said, I don't like photographers. He couldn't, he couldn't say photographers. And he just said, I don't like photographers. And you, I immediately thought for a five-year-old, you know, how does, um, you know, has a five-year-old sort of come to the conclusion that he doesn't like photographers when he's very rarely seen any? But of course, you know, every day of his life as a child up to that point, he used to sort of scan through the, the newspapers which had been laid out on the chest freezer by the, by the chef. And of course, you know, he could see pictures of his mother 99% of the time in a sort of happy pose. But of course, it's always the negative ones that kids pick up. Anyway, we arrived at the school and there was, what, 60, 70, 80 photographers there. And uh, William does his dutiful wave, as does his mother. And then we get inside and, um, and then there was all the, the, the mothers in, dressed in their finery, you know, desperate to uh, introduce their kid to William. And then eventually one of these kids has catapulted across the floor to meet William and he said, below the peak of his cap, he said, excuse me, is it true that you know the Queen? And William just looked at him and said, don't be silly, don't, don't you mean Granny? Because <laughs> everyone sort of started laughing their bloody heads off. But um, And uh, it was fun. Um, now, of course, in complete contrast to Harry's first day at school, the same message was given, but of course, when he turned up at school, what does he do? As soon as he arrives, he sort of puts his tongue out at the media, um, which I remember then has sort of great front-page tabloid coverage. What were the anti- What would Harry get up to? What would William get up to? I remember um, that they would uh, always be looking to sort of uh, either surprise their mother or frighten their mother. I mean, you know, they all have have fun and games. So tell us a, a, about some of the stories there. Well, I, mean, I think Decker Island is a good example because it involves not only the antics of the kids, but it, it's also, um, you know, where the media become involved. I mean, you know, Necker Island, owned by Sir Richard Branson, right in the middle of the BVI. I mean, it's a long way, long way out of London. And she'd chosen to go well, she chose on to holiday go. there. He'd offered it, I suppose. But, but exactly. it was with her. But it was, there was an opportunity. I think it was very generous of Branson because it was the chance of being alone. Well, of course, you know, you're never alone as a royal. Nowhere in the world is, is free of the media. Not that, that I, we ever found it. Uh, anyway, we arrived at... Uh, at uh, Branson's Island and for two days there were no media because it took them two days to find out where we were and we got there then suddenly on nearby Barris Creek you've got 60, 70 of the world's media they need managing there's no private secretary there's no press secretary there's nothing so, just you and your team well right? just me and a, and a few um, Caribbean officers who were, who were so knackered anyway working on the sort of the, the, the drugs trade coming from the south so they weren't interested in looking after royalty um, and anyway, one particular day, Diana, in a pretty bad mood, said, look, I'm not, I'm not going to give any press, Ken, I, I'm not going to give any photographs. And I said, well, that's okay, that's fine by me, but, you know, tell me, what am I going to do with 80 of the world's media across that stretch of water? Well, it's up to you to deal with it, Ken. I said, okay, well, I can deal with it, but I can't because they have a right to land on this island. That's the law of the land. Now, I'm not so certain they will do that, but... Look, I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I think it's in your interest to enjoy your week's holiday here to give them a photograph. No, I'm not going to do it, Ken. Fine. And I just left it to that. And then what broke, what really made the change was that uh, a guy called Dan Brown, who was the um, the island manager, had arrived from nearby Tortola with the with the island supplies, you know, the champagne, the prawns, everything else. And in amongst these, these goodies came um, a, a gift for Harry and William. And uh, 
he was a Canadian, and he said, look, he said, I bought a gift for the boys. I said, oh, that's great. What is it? He said, well, it's a catapult. And I had this image of, you know, William and Harry going around the island, killing birds with these handheld catapults. But it wasn't. It was two big stretches of this sort of inch-thick elastic with a, with a leather pouch and a big bag of balloons that you fill with water. And then you fired them at targets. Anyway, William heard this with Harry, and again in this sort of just William way, he said, oh, it's a great idea, Ken, it's a really great idea. And Harry said, yeah, it's really good. And um, he's, he said, I tell you what we can do, Ken, we can fill them with water and we can go to the top of the cliff. And when mummy um, um, gives a, um, a photo call, uh, we can fire the balloons at the press. <laughs> I said, hey, hang on a bit, you better speak to your mother about this. Anyway, off he went. And then Diana appeared. She said, Ken, I think what Williams said about the balloons is a very good idea. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So... Suddenly, this from this save of this woman who didn't want to do anything now is dead keen to take part in this photo shoot. So I said, "Well, that's fine." So I went across, saw, you know, the the, the captain marrying James Whitaker, and I said, "Look, James, look, the photo call's on for tomorrow morning, eleven o'clock, fifteen minutes. It's up to you. We've got to organise it. You can't land." And he was due. He said, "I can't take you enough." <laughs> it was extraordinary. Anyway, the following morning on this beach, and there's Diana in this sort of um, leopard-skin swimsuit. And I think all the media will will acknowledge it was probably some of the best pictures ever taken of Diana in the Caribbean. But, of course, what the press didn't know, that just towards the end of the shoot, there's this cry from Harry from the top of this cliff, fire! (laughs) And off comes this this salvo of multicoloured water balloons from the top of this cliff. And what was so extraordinary about that was that one of these balloons hit Whitaker on the chest. <laughs> and, of course, Diana, her mother, her sisters, her brother, thought this was absolutely incredible. And even the, even the other snappers and perhaps in the boat thought this was extraordinary. And, of course, Whitaker didn't lose the moment. He dropped his binoculars and shouted towards the princess, I've just been flayed by the future king of England. <laughs> and uh, the photo call finished. And, um, you know, there was Harry now sort of throwing the balloons off the top. He couldn't sort of reload the catapult quick enough. Great, great, amazing. Great times. I mean, they had good times too, not only with their mum, but, you know, on their dad's Highgrove estate. I know that you were once, um, <laughs> you were once described as the... Bernie Eccleston by the Prince of Wales when, oh, when, when you'd allowed them to go riding on go-karts across his... Uh, well, what, what happened there? Well, well, one, winter week, one winter weekend, Diana said, is there any chance you could arrange some go-karts for William and Harry down at Highgrove? And I, I said, does your husband know about it? And she said, oh, don't worry about him. Anyway, through um, uh, this friend of ours at Playscape Racing, who I'd known for some time, and Diana had actually been there with friends of hers over many years, he agreed to bring three go-karts down to, to Highgrove at a weekend when, when the prince wasn't there. <laughs> anyway, it was a grotty morning. It had been raining. Anyway, William decided to set up his Grand Prix circuit from the barns down the back drive through his father's vegetable plot and then back up the front of the drive. And that was the circuit. Well, 
great fun. I mean, it was amazing. Everyone had great fun. Of course, we then went. I had to go down and tidy up the back end of the the garden because the tire marks and that virtually wrecked the wild flower garden. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the following weekend, um, we're back down there, and the Prince of Wales came up to me. He said, "Oh, so I gather you had a marvelous weekend go karting." I said, "Yes, sir. I did." I said, uh, "It was really good fun. I mean, the kids enjoyed it." He said, "I see you repaired my flower bit." I said, "Yes, indeed." There was a silence, and he looked at me and said, you're not considering becoming the next Bernie Eccleston, are you? <laughs> <laughs> but he had a sense of humour, you see. Yeah, I, was, you see I, mean, I always, I liked him for that. I mean, um, you know, it couldn't have been easy for him in, in, in such circumstances, but he was incredibly generous to his staff, incredibly generous to us. Now for a reading of um, one of my previous books. It's called The Future Royal Family, published by J- John Blake in the um, in the UK, and also it was published in America um, a few years ago. It's um, it looks at William Kate and the modern royals, but this particular chapter is called Prince the Younger, and it looks at the Prince of Wales. I look forward to enormously to be that relationship. HRH, the Prince of Wales, when asked about the prospect of becoming a grandfather before the birth of Prince George. The Prince of Wales is a serious thinking man, a tireless campaigner on environmental issues. He believes it is his duty to raise a debate so that real action is taken now to stop a human race destroying the natural world for the future generations. It is a responsibility he feels all the more acutely now that he is a grandfather. Before the birth of the royal baby, Prince George, he spoke of it time and time again. He said he didn't want to hand on to an increasingly dysfunctional world to his grandchild. In an interview with ITV This Morning presenters Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, he went a bit further. He told them, I've gone on for years about the importance of thinking about the long term in relation to the environment, damage, climate change and everything else. We don't, in a sensible world, want to hand on an increasingly dysfunctional world to our grandchildren, to leave them with the real problem. I don't want to be confronted by my future grandchild and them saying, why didn't you do something about it? So clearly now that we have all have grandchildren, it makes it even more obvious to try and make sure we leave them something that isn't a total poison chalice. Already the longest serving heir to the throne, with a wealth of experience, he will play a pivotal role in the raising of Prince George, who will one day reign like him. He received a bad press as a father when his sons were small, mainly because Princess Diana was briefing to the media against him. Actually, despite him having a very busy life of duty packed with engagements, he was surprisingly hands-on as a father. Prince Charles often turned up at bath time and loved reading to the children just before they went to bed. Privately, those close to him say he was thrilled at becoming a grandfather. When asked about it on air publicly, however, he only replied, it's a lovely thought. One of his stalling catchphrases when confronted with personal questions. He said the same when quizzed about getting married to Camilla. Further into the interview, however, his demeanour seemed to change and there was a light and more open side to our next king in his later years. And he added, with a natural smile, I look forward enormously to that relationship. He joked too that he felt a bit old. It's clearly a relationship that he has enjoyed. He's totally natural around children and they warm to him. Perhaps it's his whimsical sense of humour or just a natural affinity. Sadly, he himself barely knew his own grandfather, King George VI, who died aged just 56 from cancer. 
There are a few enchanting photos of the young prince sitting next to the proud grandfather. It's one of the most cherished images for the prince. Of course, he had an extremely close relationship with his own grandmother, the Queen Mother. She played a pivotal role in his upbringing, always there for him when his own mother was understandably occupied with matters of state. The Queen Mother, as she became known, cared for him often when duty meant his mother and father had to travel the globe and leave him behind. Charles will be the future sovereign's leading light in the understanding of the complex world of royalty. After all, he is not only our longest ever heir to the throne in, in terms of years, but he has raised a future heir himself with Prince William, much of the time as a single father. Fortunately, Charles has the perfect supporter in this role as a grandmother, Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, having declared she loves her own grandchildren so much and will be there for him to turn to for advice. She spends hours with her own grandchildren, often away from the glare of royal life at her own private residence, Raymill House. She is a down-to-earth woman and appreciates the importance of family. She loves the country life and country pursuits. Charles, too, loves nothing more than stomping around the countryside. It helps him think. There is no doubt it is something that they will both encourage when it comes to their grandchildren and want them to do, too. Camilla will never interfere too much in Charles's family life. She knows she has a semi-detached role as a step-granny and would not want to try to fill the role of William's late mother, Diana. Her hands-off approach has helped her relationship with both William and Harry as a stepmother. She never overplayed it, but she is a trusted linchpin between old and young. Dinah, of course, won't be there for William, but his father and Camilla won't be alone. The Middletons will be there too, especially Carol, who he loves dearly. Carol is well aware of the demands that the palace will make on her daughter Kate and son-in-law William. She will defend and shield them with a healthy dose of normality in, in return, and William will ensure that Kate's mum and dad are not frozen out, however unintentionally, by the palace and their royal bonds. William would almost certainly look and learn from how he was raised by his own father, Charles. He knew he had a special responsibility and would have to grow up to shoulder them. While Diana battled against royal tradition, Charles was born to it, and after all wanted his sons to embrace it, and therefore be at ease with what they faced. The result of this conflict was William and Harry, despite all the distractions and complications of their parents' dysfunctional relationship, Growing to remarkably well-balanced young men, William and his middle-class-raised wife, Kate, will have a similar dilemma. They will want their son to be raised as a private, normal individual. But the problem is, what is normal for a baby who is born to be king? So no matter how hard William and Kate try to give their first baby an ordinary upbringing, he will be special. After all, this baby will one day reign. It will also be a royal prince as the Queen had issued a special royal decree to ensure the royal baby whales would be made HRH. Fortunately, Prince William and Kate are not bothered by stuffy protocol, but they understand that because their baby, George, will one day be King Regnant, they have to be protective over his privacy. However, as best they can, despite all the pressures from the media, the public, and indeed their very own family, the new parents will strive to give their firstborn as natural and as normal a childhood as possible. Thanks to everyone who took part in this episode and thanks to you for listening to Robert Jobson's Royal Podcast. 
Remember, you can subscribe, rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and find more exclusive content on standard.co.uk slash royalpodcast. Until next time, this is Robert Jobson signing off. Thank you.